please stand and give your attention to this reading of God's holy word from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, we have begun a new season in the church calendar. If you are uh, celebrating with us for the first time in this year, you may recognize that we have changed the ornaments uh, or paraments, of, if, if you will. They are, they are defined as uh, liturgical colors. They're, they're described as liturgical colors. We do not wear robes at this church, so I'm not wearing purple. Um, I'm not wearing a purple stole. Uh, and um, nevertheless, we have a deep celebration of the church calendar. For six years in this church, we have been celebrating the church calendar as it informs our faith and practice and the content of our preaching. And one of the benefits of doing this year by year is it presents a unique challenge to the preacher in that he has now preached four or five years in a row or six years in a row or however long they've been celebrating the same passages. And this is not an accident. This is by design. Throughout the centuries, the church has always recognized this design in her experience of faith, and they have recognized throughout the ages, we confessed earlier one holy, apostolic, and Catholic church. We use the word universal here because we uh, are sensitive to a misunderstanding in the broader evangelical culture that the word Catholic implies Roman Catholic. It does not. It means simply that God's people throughout the ages and throughout the world have been one people. The church has expressed one faith, one baptism. There's one Lord, as Paul teaches 
the Corinthians, and our creed confesses and recognizes. And therefore, that Catholic church, that universally whole church, that unified, integral body of believers, has recognized the importance of the life of Christ in the life of the Christian. If you were here during the Sunday school hour, Andy mentioned how the Christians were first called Christians at Antioch. They were described as in a derogatory term. Isn't it so beautiful how that often is the case? It used to be that Protestant was a slang, ter- a term of, of disparagement, and now it's worn as a, bra- a badge proudly. We like to call ourselves Reformed, not Protestant. But even if you want to call us Protestant, we will. There were things worth protesting. One of those things that was not worth protesting was the use of the liturgical calendar to inform the faith and practice of the church. The, Reform, the Reformation churches, by and large, retained this practice as she was reforming. Nevertheless, the idea is that the life of Christ is so central to the Christian experience that we must routinely return to the life of Christ, the details of the life of Christ in the Gospels to inform our faith and practice. That is to say that the events of the life of Jesus are so vital to the practice of Christianity that we must routinely remember them. The most oft-repeated command in the Old Testament is to remember the Lord your God. Therefore, the season of Lent has been set apart by the church as a time of repentance, a repetition of those 40 days of which Luke wrote lived out in the Christian faith. Now, if you've ever had the time to count Lent on the calendar, you'll notice that it's actually not 40 calendar days. It's approximately 47 or 46, depending on the way you count. The reason being that the church never celebrates the fast of Lent on the Lord's day because the Lord's Day is a celebration always. It's always a feast on the Lord's Day. It's not worth fasting. If you want the bacon double cheeseburger, be blessed and be filled. (laughs) The season of Lent is designed to redo, remember, reenact the life of Jesus Christ in the Christian. Therefore, Luke's account of this temptation of Christ, not only shows the glories of Christ's victory over the devil through his submission to his Father's will as taught by God's Word, which is the content of Luke's passage, it is not only a repetition of the fact of Jesus Christ's victory and the presentation of Christ's glory in victory, but also a call to us to imitate Jesus Christ in the manner of his obedience. So much gospel preaching ends with a forgiveness of sins that stops at the cross, but the cross was purchased, the cross was done that you would obey the law through the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is doing. Over and over again, the, the New Testament presents us with hundreds of specific commands of obedience that are implied by the work of the cross. And therefore, Christian living cannot merely reenact or recounter or remember the facts of Jesus Christ without simultaneously being called up into the imitation of Jesus. What I am attempting to say is that you cannot remember the victory of Jesus Christ in the wilderness without desiring to imitate his manner of victory. It's disconnected. 
God's people often do not recognize the power of His Word to overcome the temptations of Satan. In the broader evangelical church, especially in Pentecostal and charismatic circles, certain phrases have become unwritten dogmas that have been encapsulated in a phrase, and we use these phrases and we mean something by them, and that meaning is distorted from biblical faith and practice. What do I mean by that? Have you ever heard a Christian say, well, I'm just really broken and I'm trying to be restored? This celebration of brokenness, the exaltation of deficiency and immaturity tends to, it starts out with a good beginning, a recognition of the weakness of the believer, but then it tends to camp out and rest in, well, we all are broken in some ways, and we all have difficulty obeying in some ways. Those things are true, brothers and sisters, but in the way that we use the term brokenness, it becomes more of a celebration of brokenness and a mutual affirmation of each other's brokenness. Another common phrase is, well, I just had a lot of spiritual warfare this week. Brothers and sisters, you always have spiritual warfare every week. The point of the Christian life is it is a war. You are in an all-out, everyday, 24-7, never-take-your-finger-off-the-trigger war against the powers of evil who want to destroy your life. You always have a lot of spiritual warfare. What we often mean when we say, I've just had a lot of spiritual warfare this week, is we mean we gave in to a lot of temptation, and we permitted the enemy to advance in our minds, hearts, and practice without cutting off the serpent's head. I'm speaking metaphorically when I mean that. I don't mean you actually go and get a gun and have one in your hand and keep your finger on the trigger. I don't mean you actually go buy a sword if it helps you to go buy a sword to live out the metaphor, go ahead. But the, the point that I'm making is that Jesus Christ's victory, which we celebrate every Lent, the beginning of Lent, is not to be celebrated without desiring to imitate it. That's how you celebrate Christ's victory. So to that end, I want to look at three ideas from this passage. Really, the first idea will come before this passage in Luke chapter 3. Then the Holy Spirit's leading of Jesus Christ and emphasizing that this leading was not a fault of the Lord nor a weakness in the Lord, but it was God's design to emphasize Jesus Christ as the real Adam. And then finally, I want to end with our requirement to conquer through the Word. Jesus Christ defeated Satan not only in our place, but for our example of imitation. The Christian gospel is not just trust in Christ. It is trust in Christ and imitate Christ. It is imitate Christ and imitate the way he trusted the Father. Hearing the Father's words last week as we celebrated transfiguration, we then remember how God thundered those exact same words in his baptism. We just ended last week the celebration of the season of Epiphany. It began with his baptism. And the reason the church has done this is to bookend and to encapsulate and to put together a unified whole of the season of Epiphany in which Christ's glory is being demonstrated in magnificent ways, not only to the people of Israel, but also the rest of the nations. And at the beginning and end of Epiphany, God thunders from heaven these amazing words, 
this is my beloved son, or some gospel uh, writers use the phrase, you are my beloved son, as Luke records. This glorious encapsulation is done so that when we come to Lent, we might remember exactly what took place at the beginning of Epiphany. So Epiphany begins with his baptism. There's a number of different miracles that are celebrated and remembered, the wedding of Cana, the various miracles of that gospel. And then the season ends with transfiguration that we celebrated last week. And at the beginning and the end of, those, of that season, we remember the times when God at the start and near the close of Christ's ministry thundered from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, and this is my beloved son, my chosen one, listen to him. And so we remember at the start of the, remembering the temptation, we have to remember the context of those temptations. Right before Luke 4 closes, very important things are recorded by Luke. Luke 3.21, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The question I want to ask is what does it mean that Jesus is God's son? Last week, we saw this in the transfiguration, that God was marking with divine approval that this is not Moses or Elijah's counterpart, but this is God in the flesh. However, at this context of Luke, in Luke chapter 3, Luke is not recording these words to provide a detail of Trinitarian theology. What I mean by that is Luke has much more in mind when the Father is thundering from heaven and and Luke is emphasizing these words, that Jesus is not just divine. It doesn't just mean that Jesus is the incarnate God when God says to him, you are my son. Rather, the Father thunders these words primarily to demonstrate the nature of Jesus Christ as the true Adam and the real Israelite. Now, this is a theological point, and it's a detail, but I think if we miss these points, we will miss what Luke 4 is all about. In fact, it is so clear to me from this passage that I want to I take a look at all of God's design when He sent John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Lord. In verse 7, John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers. What is a brood of vipers? It's a group of people who are the children of snakes, or to use the Genesis 3 reference, the seed of the serpent. Don't lose that thought. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Imagine tweeting this. Imagine preaching this. Bear fruits in keeping with your repentance. What are they supposed to do? Bear fruits. What bears a fruit? A tree, a tree bears a fruit, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Who are the trees that John's talking about? The Israelites. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
the reason that Luke records John the Baptist's message is to emphasize the restoration that Christ will bring as the last Adam and the real true Israelite. All of this imagery that John uses in his rebuke of Israel strongly invokes the memory of Adam's failure in the garden. Luke is highlighting key themes of John's message to say that Jesus is going to bring his people back into fellowship with God. He's going to make a way to get back into the garden. What was at the garden, at the entrance of the garden? A sword that was flaming and turning every which way. What would be required of Adam and Eve if they were to, to go back into the garden? They would be cut and burned. This was what all of the sacrifices in Israel were trying to demonstrate. John called out these religious hypocritical people who came out to this baptism for vainglorious motives to be seen by others as religious. He called them the seed of the serpent. These people wished to be seen as righteous before God, but were actually far from God. The themes of John the Baptist's message are clearly from the temptation of Adam in the garden. Snakes who come in with false pretenses, the demand to bear good fruit, promised children, seeds in the place of false children, trees which produce corrupting fruit. And if you'll squint your eyes at the metaphor for a little bit, an axe or sword and fire which prevents men from entering into the garden. All of what John the Baptist is doing is he's using biblical language to preach to God's covenant people and remind them of the themes of God's ways. And Luke is recording certain things that John said in order that we might hear this little beginning melody that we've heard a hundred times before and then be able to pick up the tune and listen along with him. John the Baptist is therefore outlining who the Christ is going to be. He's going to be the true Son of God who overcomes the temptations of the serpent. He, Jesus, is going to be the one to bear the fruit of faith and holiness. He is going to be the one to remove the unrighteous trees in Israel which produce bad fruit, and he is going to throw them into the fire. Therefore, in his baptism, when the Father calls Jesus his Son, as I said earlier, he's not providing a Trinitarian doctrine point, although that is a true point. Jesus is the divine incarnate Son of God. When the Father says, you are my Son, the Father is publicly demonstrating that Jesus is going to fulfill all that which Adam failed to do and all that which the nation of Israel as one man failed to do. Do you see where I'm going here? I'm trying to emphasize that Luke is recording certain things to say something about what it means to truly be a child of God. Likewise, in Jesus' genealogy in Luke, Luke is carefully structuring these words to highlight Jesus' identity as God's Son. He does this in four ways with an extremely awkward beginning, construction, placement, and ending. First, in Luke's beginning of the, uh, uh, Luke's placement of the genealogy, he interrupts the narrative between Christ's baptism and the temptation. If you look at the other Gospels, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark actually really glosses over the temptation entirely. It's only a verse or two away from the, the baptism. Christ's baptism takes place, the temptation happens, and then he moves into the Galilee, ministry in Galilee, all in the span of three or four verses. 
But here, Luke actually places a genealogy, which normally comes at the beginning of a book. He places it between the baptism and the temptation. Why? Because Luke is highlighting the last sentence in Christ's baptism, the Father's words and Satan's first attack. Luke starts the beginning of the genealogy with an extremely strange phrase. He says, being the son as it was supposed of Joseph. You would never begin a genealogy and say at the start of the genealogy, oh, by the way, this actually isn't true, literally speaking. Why? Because Luke is trying to say he's more than just Joseph's son. He's not really Joseph's son at all. But being conceived of a virgin, he is the son of God. In truth, in Israelite culture, even in our culture today, he was Joseph's son as accords to familial ties, but not by blood, not by patronage or parentage. Third, Luke has constructed this genealogy in an extremely strange way. So it's, it's placement being in between Two different stories, not being at the beginning of the gospel. It's beginning, saying, as it was supposed. But also, this genealogy is very unique. In fact, I looked through the scriptures and could not find another genealogy. I'm sure there may be one. I'm not saying there isn't one. I just didn't find it. Where a genealogy was constructed in reverse. It begins with the son of Joseph and moves upward all the way to Adam. The reason is, is Luke is wanting to make a loud crescendo at the end of this genealogy, and that is where this genealogy also is extremely awkward. Finally, at the end of this genealogy, Luke says, the son of Adam, the son of God. He does this to highlight the responsibility of Adam to obey his quote-unquote father and to call Jesus the Son of God. It's rightly understood in the biblical uh, pattern that when you call someone a son, you also mean that they are the son of that person's parent. For example, Jesus is rightly called the Son of David. In fact, in this very same chapter in Luke 3, the people who reject John the Baptist's warnings say, don't presume to call yourselves sons of Abraham. You see, in Israel, it was common to identify a patriarch of your line as your father. And it's right to say that we would be called sons of Abraham. It's, it's kind of like in America if we called ourselves, well, I'm a son of George Washington or I'm a son of Benjamin Frank. We would be identifying with, I'm a real American. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, I'm a son of Abraham. But here, Jesus, as called by Luke, is called the Son of God. The interesting thing about that is genealogies in the Scriptures never start with God begat Adam and Adam begat Seth. Luke is doing something to say something more than... It matters a lot more that Jesus is recognized as the Son of God than anything else. And therefore, Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God as regards His divinity... But walking as a man, he is the one to perfectly obey the Father's will. Being God's son and having been anointed with the Spirit in his baptism, Jesus perfectly yields to the Holy Spirit's guidance. In verse 1 we read, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days 
being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. God the Holy Spirit directed the incarnate Son in the wilderness to display God's power in weakness. Though Jesus was divine, Jesus did not walk in the power of his divinity. What do I mean by that? He got tired. He was hungry. He was susceptible to temptation. He was prone to temptation and weakness, yet without sin. Jesus needed to eat. He needed to use the restroom. He was a real person. Jesus did not walk into the wilderness drawing in his humanity from a divine source of energy apart from the Holy Spirit. He was a real man, and he as a man really is going to submit to his Father's will. The Spirit, therefore, is causing Jesus to be humbled even according to natural power. What do I mean by this? You and I have an experience where if we eat, we are strengthened by the food that we eat. And if we go a certain amount of time, that strength begins to wane. We stop using the, the energy that's in our body through, through eating, and we start using the energy that is in our body through fat stores. And if you take this experience to a great amount of time, the reserves that you have in your system begin to dwindle. It's, it's very vital to see that Jesus is brought by the Holy Spirit to the end of his rope, so to speak. He's pushed by the Holy Spirit intentionally to the point of extreme weakness in his body, having fasted for 40 days. All of this was done to reveal what was truly in Jesus Christ. The Spirit caused him to be humbled to reveal what was in him, just as God had done with Israel long ago. In Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3, it says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Jesus is reliving everything that has happened to the people of Israel. The Spirit is designing this series of temptations to reveal to us and to God what is truly in Christ. That is to say, although God knows His Son perfectly, His Son's perfect obedience was demonstrated in the realm of the creation. Christ did not die on a mystical cross. He accomplished obedience on a real cross. It's a real obedience that Christ accomplished. It's not a fantastic or fanta phantasm obedience. It was really performed. It was really accomplished. Jesus here is fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, all of this recalling the 40 years of Israel's wandering. Everything that Jesus is doing in this temptation is recapitulating Israel's history. What do I mean by recapitulate? I mean it's, it's remembering, but redoing so as to fix the problems. It's putting into force all of what God had given His people in covenant promise, which they failed to uphold, but which He will uphold. Though Israel ate manna every day, Jesus did not eat anything. In fact, Jesus' glory is so greater than both Adam's disobedience and Israel's disobedience that he succeeds in every place to a greater degree than what Israel or Adam failed to do. 
Jesus entrusted him to the, himself to the Spirit's guidance without complaint. What was the first thing that Israel did when she was in the wilderness? She began to complain. Even though they were fed with manna and even though they were fed with quail and, with, and were given water, she complained throughout her entire journey. Jesus, however, is continuing to entrust himself to the Spirit's guidance without complaint, though he ate nothing. Likewise, Adam, who resided in paradise along with a helper, could eat of any fruit of the garden except for one tree. Contrast that with Jesus Christ. Not only was he in the wilderness instead of paradise, he was without any company and without any food. He dwelt in a wasteland. And he was surrounded by wild beasts. All of this is God's design that he might show the surpassing greatness of the obedience of his son. It was interesting that Andy mentioned Habakkuk this morning because I also am going to mention Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 2.20, there's this wonderful verse. In fact, it's a great verse for understanding the place of awe and prayer before God's work through Jesus Christ. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You see, Jesus is succeeding in every place that Adam and Israel failed, and therefore let no one accuse the Lord Jesus of any misdoings. He is perfectly obedient, and he stops every mouth with his obedience. Remembering this biblical context, the context of Jesus Christ being seen as the Son of God, the subtlety of Satan's first temptation is in Luke's recording, like kind of like screaming. It, I don't know of any better way to explain this, but it would be like if this was on a web page, if Luke was writing on the internet instead of parchment, it would be surrounded and there'd be exclamation points around it and blinking lights. And if you moused over it, it would start to change colors. Luke is demonstrating the chief aspect of the temptation of Satan to be to prove his divinity through self-directed ambition instead of yielding and obedience to the Father. From his birth, his baptism, the history of Israel, and the account of Adam, everything here hangs upon whether or not Jesus is God's Son, whether or not he will truly obey the Father's will. Notice what the devil says to him in verse 3. It says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Satan's subtle temptation to Jesus was to prove his identity by wielding self-directed power and ambition. Essentially, it is as if Satan came to the Lord and said to him, Well, if God made bread in the wilderness and you're God's son, why can't you make bread in the wilderness? Do you see how crafty the devil is? He was suggesting to him things like, would the Spirit really direct you to stop eating? Doesn't he know that you need to eat food? In the wilderness? Won't you die out here? This is what the, 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 uh, the serpent is trying to do to this real true Adam. He's trying to say to Adam, did God really direct you out here? Did he really tell you to stop eating food? Can't you, if you're God's son, take your own direction and your own authority? Can't you manifest the same power that God manifested? 
But immediately, Jesus demonstrates the nature of his obedience in his sonship. He upholds God's authority by quoting God's word. Even God's son submits to the written revelation of the scriptures. This is stunning, brothers and sisters. If you know who Jesus Christ is as God in the flesh, he does not quote his own words to defeat the angel that he made. He quotes God's word as given to Israel an obscure detail of the historical retelling of what took place in the wilderness that the Son of God uses the word of God to defeat temptation. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3. He's citing a detail about God's dealing with Israel as binding upon his momentary obedience. What do I mean by that? Jesus is not actually quoting a command. We read in Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3 that it's just a historical recounting of the fact that God took them in the wilderness to teach them that man does not live by bread alone. But Jesus cites that as a command to his momentary obedience. What does this mean? It means that Jesus so treasures the word that the Spirit is able to cause him to know what to do in the moment through God's word. Jesus here is expressing his identity as the true Israel. And by doing this, he infers that we, are ought, we ought to learn through God's history, God's ways. And learning God's ways through God's history, we understand the requirement of momentary obedience. This means we ought to give ourselves to the, the word of God in much greater clarity and detail and persistence than we do. Satan then attempts to tempt him with the kingdoms of the world. In verse 5, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to them, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is, a, is, it, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. This temptation is likewise deceptive because Satan is a liar and twists the purposes of God. It is a dangerous thing, brothers and sisters, to listen to the voice of Satan or a demon in your scriptures and make doctrinal inferences, assuming the truth of what you read. Just because the Bible is infallible and inerrant does not mean all the quotations are true. When the, when the devil says that he's going to give away the kingdom and their authority and their glory, he wouldn't. So, so at the very onset of the temptation, I will give you all of the glory of these kings. No, you won't. Though Satan is, quote unquote, the God of this age, those kingdoms were not given to him. He says, all of this has been given to me. No, it was not given to him. He usurped them through corrupting sin. He usurped Adam's dominion and stole the kingdoms of men, which were to be for God. Third, he has no power to give them to anyone at all because they're not in his power to give. God has not given him the kingdoms of men. Fourth, however, and most likely this is the most enticing aspect of this temptation, Christ cannot receive the glory of the nations through external worship alone, but only through the true worship of obedience to the Father in going to the cross. Understanding where Christ is going, all that we're celebrating and leading up 
in Lent unto Easter, that Christ will purchase the nations on the cross as He says to His disciples to go therefore as He has received all authority in heaven and earth. This is the central aspect of the temptation. Satan was presenting to the Lord Jesus all of the glory of the kingdoms of men without going to the cross. This was a true enticing temptation. Satan offered him this apart from obedience to the Father. Although Satan said, if you will, then worship me, it will all be yours. In fact, the kingdoms of men will all be his because he refuses to worship Satan. It's exactly the opposite of the temptation. If he worships Satan even externally, if he obeys Satan's word, he will not get the glory of the nations. And he will be rewarded by the Father for defeating the temptations of the, of, of the enemy. What was the temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane? It's a hearkening back to this temptation, isn't it? Let this cup pass far from me. Do you think the Lord Jesus was being tempted that night in Gethsemane? You bet he was tempted. Jesus is God's son. He's going to do the will of the Father. He loves the Father's will. This doctrine of Jesus as the Son of God obeying the Father's will is so hostile to our anti-hierarchy, anti-authority age, and yet it is the pure and true gospel. In verse 9, And he, the devil, took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This final temptation of Satan is quite perplexing. How is jumping off a building enticing to anyone? What's the actual temptation? Well, the actual temptation is that Christ had been walking by the direction of the Spirit, quoting the Scriptures as a defense for His seemingly self-deprecating behavior. Why are you fasting, Jesus? Well, the Lord said, man does not live by bread alone. Why are you not taking authority? Well, over and over again, Jesus is rebuffing Satan by quoting the Scripture. But now, Satan, in Luke's recording, uses Scripture. Here, Satan is trying to tempt this Scripture-obeying, Scripture-loving Messiah to threaten his life with a scriptural warrant. Satan tempts Jesus here to force God's hand to prove that just as the Spirit had led him to the wilderness and to cease from eating, he likewise had the ability to demand that God send angels to his aid. If you really are the Son of God, Prove that you are the Son of God. Though Christ indeed had biblical warrant, 2 Peter 1.20 tells us that no prophecy of Scripture, no application of Scripture, comes from someone's own interpretation. It's true that Jesus could have factually or truthfully done the letter of the law here in Psalm 91. But Jesus knew fully well that authority on earth comes from submission to heaven. That is the design of Jesus' obedience. It's interesting to note that Satan had quoted from Psalm 91, 11, and 12, and it's likely that Christ remembered the very next verse. In Psalm 91, verse 13, it says, You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will tra- trample underfoot. 
I think Satan knew that verse too, didn't he? He probably did. And oftentimes in the Scriptures, when you quote a particular verse, you invoke the whole meaning of the passage. However, it's interesting to remember the very next words that come after the Scripture that Satan uses to try to twist the Lord into doing His will instead of the Father's will. It's interesting to see the unity of the Scripture, that even though Satan is twisting the Scriptures, he's not able to get very far without emphasizing the point of his own demise and the son's obedience. In verse 13, it says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Having now conquered in the wilderness, Jesus is ready to return into the land of Galilee to minister in the power of the Spirit. How did Israel come up into the promised land? Through weakness, through obedience, with an entire generation dying off. How did Jesus return to Galilee? In the power of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, without God punishing him for disobedience, and without dying. He survived. He came into the land, and just as Israel invaded Canaan, putting out the nations and destroying the false gods, Jesus, throughout the rest of the Gospels, is going to invade and to take authority for the kingdom of God. John Gill says that Satan here is now waiting until the hour and power of darkness by means of one of his disciples in which he would bruise his heel and bring him to an accursed death. In each of these temptations, Jesus shows the power of the Scriptures in defeating the enemy. Before Jesus ever went into the dryness of the wilderness, Jesus delighted in the law of the Lord. And therefore, in the wilderness, he was demonstrated as the one who is like a tree planted by the streams of water. In Psalm 1, 2, and 3, we hear that those who delight in the law of the Lord will be nourished like they're a tree that's planted by the streams of water. Jesus has imitated his father David, who stored up God's word in his heart that he might not sin against him. Jesus is demonstrating what obedience looks like for all those who come after him. The central problem that this passage addresses in the Christian church is this, that God's beloved children often do not recognize the power of his word to combat the temptations of the enemy, to overcome those temptations. And therefore, because we do not understand the power of God's word, we do not store up God's word to be ready in the moment. Jesus did not take scrolls into the wilderness, brothers and sisters. He did not have fighter verses on his iPhone as much as I love my fighter verses on my iPhone. If you don't know what that is, I'll have lunch with you and show you. It would be a wonderful application of this passage. The point that Jesus is doing in going out into the wilderness and wielding the sword of the Word of God against the enemy is He is demonstrating for God's people the power of obedience, yieldness to the Father's will, and yieldness to the Father's will as expressed by the Scriptures of God. Therefore, as God's people, we often fail to learn how to sheathe the sword and wield the sword and therefore are caught unarmed in the conflict. If you've ever watched any training videos for tactical defense or any sort of understanding of what it takes to rebuff an attacker, 
you'll know that you cannot be prepared in the moment if you are not prepared before the moment. You can't go get the gun. You can't go get the sword or the knife. You can't go lock the door once they've broken in. You have to prepare for the encounter before the encounter. And yet God's word constantly is encouraging ourselves to give ourselves to the study of God's word and meditation and memorization of God's word. I want to read just a few verses that have become very precious to me about reading God's word. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through the endurance and then through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That has become a, a sweet and precious promise. God wrote down what happened to Israel for your benefit, that you would be encouraged by the scriptures and through them you would have hope. Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Psalm 119, verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? Do you want to keep your way pure? I want to keep my way pure by guarding it according to your word. Guarding it. Putting a hedge around it. Putting it in a place where people can't access it. How can you guard your life? By guarding it with God's word. This is my deep call to you. My, my desire for you this year is that you would give yourself to memorizing the word of God so that when you are tempted, you have something precious to hold on to, a promise of God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Don't look at that website. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see what? They will see God. Do you want to see God? Learn that verse. Grab that verse. Hold on to it like Jacob wrestling the angel until the breaking of day, and do not let it go until you overcome Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Brothers and sisters, what are you possibly using against the, the enemy other than the Word of God that you are hoping in and trusting in? Your willpower, it will not work. You will not outlast the enemy. He's an angel. He never, he, he never needs to eat. He never needs to nap. I don't know if he's like God, but he's a spiritual being. He has tons of power compared to you. He has learned the Word of God. He has studied human sin for thousands of years. And we're going up against Him with nothing in our hands. Brothers and sisters, the only hope you have of making progress in the Christian life is clinging by faith to Jesus Christ. And the way that you cling by faith is by hearing the Word of God. You do not cling to, to Jesus Christ by resolve. It is not an act of the will is an act of the will informed by the Word of God. Give yourselves this year to the reading of God's Word and the meditation of God's Word and the memorization of God's Word so that you would always have a means of escape in the midst of temptation. This is my call to you this morning. As those who are called to not only trust in Christ, but to imitate Christ, let us learn from Him 
how to defeat the temptations of our enemy by treasuring God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word is a, like a fire and like a hammer which breaks the rock. And Lord, I confess that my heart is often terribly rocky. It is horribly, horribly wretched. Lord, we know that there is nothing which dwells in us that is good apart from what you have done in us. And therefore, we ask that you would give to us the grace this year. Lord, we, we plead with you, give us hunger for your word. Help us to, to see the, the path of obedience that your son took in the wilderness as he over and over again quoted from your word precious passages that he had treasured before this time. Help us, Lord, to understand the power that comes through using your word. And Lord, that we would not just use it in some mechanical, formulistic fashion, but that it would be the very avenue to communion with you. That moment by moment when we're waiting in, in the library or at the office or we're waiting for a phone call to come in or we're waiting to take care of our children, that we would give ourselves in those moments to meditating upon your word and that it would become a deep, lasting avenue of communion with you. Lord, we pray that you would glorify your son's obedience at the cross through our obedience today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.